Hello, I'm Konstantin Papadimitriou, Chief Marketing Officer for Forevermark. Welcome to our podcast series, The Power of a Diamond, which aims to inspire our community by featuring some of the brightest minds who will share their diverse knowledge and experiences across various industries. With consumers taking a stronger stance on social and environmental issues beyond traditional CSR, our first episode discusses the importance of safeguarding endangered species for future generations and the positive impact that natural diamonds and a brand such as Forevermark can have to conserve, protect, and restore high levels of biodiversity. In this episode, Samantha Conti, London Bureau Chief of Women's Wear Daily, sits down with Charlie Mayhew, CEO of Tusk, Kester Vickery, co-founder of Conservation Solutions, and Stephen Lucier, chairman of Forevermark, to hear why ecological issues are not just the responsibility of individuals, but everybody, including businesses. Welcome to The Power of a Diamond. I'm Samantha Conti. I'm the London Bureau Chief of Women's Wear Daily. And I would like to introduce everyone. To my left is Charlie Mayhew, CEO of Tusk, Kesta Vickery, co-founder of Conservation Solutions, and Stephen Lucier, chairman of Forevermark. We're going to be talking today about wildlife conservation in Africa and the work also that Forevermark and De Beers has been doing. I thought it would be interesting to set the scene about the work all three of you are doing and really paint a picture of the urgency and why this work is so important. My first question is really about how urgent is this problem of poaching? Who was responsible? And some of your biggest challenges in keeping rhinos and elephants alive and thriving. Thank you. So, I mean, the the poaching crisis, I think probably uh, many of us are very familiar with dates back to really the the 70s and the 80s. And certainly from from our perspective, that was the stimulus for us establishing Tusk in in 1990. At the time, we were losing about 100,000 elephants a year to poachers. So it was decimating the elephant population. The elephant population came down from uh, something like 1.3 million to 700,000 at the time. It has subsequently continued to fall down to something in the region of about 350,000 elephants now, I believe, uh, savannah elephants anyway. So we're still losing, in theory, around about 20,000 elephants a year to poaching across the continent. But in spite of those figures, we are now beginning to see, I think, some real sort of ray of hope because the world has sort of come together to show signs of clamping down on the ivory trade. The most significant move was, was China last year, introducing a domestic ban on the ivory trade. That was significant because they probably account for about 80% of the ivory trade. And I think that it's fair to say that four or five years ago, if anybody had said that we were going to persuade China to shut down its ivory trade, none of us would have believed it. So that was very significant. And I, actually, I was... Uh, lucky enough to to be invited on a trip to China with Prince William, our patron, uh, where he had a a, a very positive and constructive meeting with President Xi, and that partially led to the introduction or the changing of that mindset. So there is still very much a threat there. The ivory trade and indeed the rhino horn trade is exploited by international organised criminal networks. These are the sort of people that are active in arms dealing, human trafficking, drugs, and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, they're just criminals looking for 
you know, the, the, the fast buck that they can make. So they've exploited this trade. The threat remains, and we've seen tusk works right across the African continent. The poaching crisis in many ways has sort of shifted in some respects from East Africa down south. Southern Africa, South Africa never had a poaching problem. Uh, it now does have a, a very, very real poaching problem, which is impacting on the rhino. Kester, can you talk up about yeah, so that? So I concur with what uh, Charlie says. I mean, we, uh, the figures really are staggering. We're still losing a lot of elephants. In the time that we're sitting in this room, probably three or four elephants would have been killed in the most inhumane ways for ivory. What is important that we need to educate people in the East, more importantly governments, that ivory is not sustainable for every little piece of ivory that somebody buys, an elephant is had to die. It's okay. as simple as it is. How do we change that? We need to have a two-pronged approach, really. We need to educate the East that it's not sustainable. Firstly, educate them, talk to governments, talk to the traders, the ivory traders, and then, of course, people who buy ivory. We need to, we need to educate them. And on the other side, we need to be talking to communities because the people who are poaching these elephants mm -hmm. are impoverished communities, people who earn a okay. dollar, two, three dollars a day, and for a few days' work, they can suddenly earn a couple of thousand dollars. So the incentive is for them, the risk versus the reward, okay. is it's worth it to go and poach elephants because they can get themselves out of a poverty trap. So, so at the same time, we need to teach communities the value of the protected areas that they surround, that they live around, and why it is important. So, but it is, it's a huge problem. Uh, it's not an easy solution. And there's a lot of work ahead to, to try and solve this problem. And Stephen, can you talk about why is it important for Forevermark to be there and some of the, the work that you guys have been doing? I guess, you know, it's Forevermark, uh, a brand from the, from the De Beers Group. You know, it's in our DNA operating in places like Botswana and South Africa and, and Namibia. So it's part of mm -hmm. the fabric of, of, of what we do. And we've, we've recognized increasingly that to be part of those communities and to help particularly governments in those regions to see beyond diamonds, you know, what is the sustainable future? There's nothing more important in a country like Botswana than ecotourism. It is in many ways uh, the key driver post uh, diamonds. But there is no ecotourism without wildlife in countries like Botswana uh, and South Africa. So we've been involved quite a long time, particularly with in our conservation areas. Uh, the De Beers Group, interestingly, for every hectare that we use for uh, recovering diamonds, we have six hectares that we manage for conservation. So we have large conservation areas around our mines, and that's both biodiversity but increasingly wildlife for that purpose. And we're challenged with the issues of poaching. I mean, we, in Botswana, we have a big rhino breeding program that Forever Mark is involved in. But we can't really talk much about it because we don't want to draw attention to it because then we have challenges of attracting poachers even in, in our area. So it's a real challenge. But I think a little bit, what, what's Forever Mark's role? I always worry sitting with two of the world experts on the topic. <laughs> But, but what we can do, I think, is help to create awareness, particularly in markets like China. Mm -hmm. And we're doing some work now in China, creating jewelry products to help raise money, but fundamentally awareness about the problems of rhino poaching in particular. Okay. And to see how can we use our marketing tools to help in this battle. Because if we can impact demand, as Charlie says, the big impact in China on 
an ivory. If we can do that for rhino, then, uh, you know, then that, that's something perhaps we can uniquely help with. Um, can you just go back, Stephen, talking about ecotourism, and maybe just go into a little bit of detail about what happens when mines close? Because I don't think not necessarily everyone would know that, because you, you open a mine, you do the work there, and then there's a whole process, right, of, of restoring yeah, the, I mean, they uh, have a, you know, a, a, a diamond mine has a very long life. So <laughs> hopefully, uh, you know, some of our big mines in Botswana were discovered in the 1960s, okay. and they should last upwards of 100 years uh, right. if all goes well. So it's a long process. But inherently, that's one of the things about diamonds. You know, a diamond is somewhere between 1 billion and 3.5 billion years old. The diamonds that you have here, you don't often think that they're 3 yeah. billion years old some cases older than life. Huh? Yeah. So diamonds aren't being made by the earth now. Huh? They're all yeah. old and we find them and eventually the mines uh, are exhausted. But those, the, the key in terms of, of sustainability is how you manage that land during that process. Okay. And that's why I think we're so committed to the conservation because we recognize with our government partners, usually we're in partnership with government, mm -hmm. that, that 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 land, which has created huge benefit now for the people of those countries by generating uh, revenues for them, work, that in yeah. the future that land has to work in a different way for those communities. <laughs> and the key for us, as I say, is, is, is biodiversity and wildlife. And so if in future those same areas can be used to generate a new source of revenue for, for those countries, it's really turning the current revenue into a future revenue stream. Okay. But it all depends on there being elephant to sea. Exactly. And I, I, was, I wanted to go back, uh, Charlie and Kester, too. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is the, the, the on-the-ground practicalities of stopping these people in, in their tracks? Or what, what are you both doing? Or is there a training program that you have? Yeah, no, we, we, we do a lot in that space. As I mentioned earlier, the, the poachers have now become more and more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. uh, they're extremely well-armed. So to combat that, uh, the rangers need to be extremely well trained. And across Africa, you, sadly, we can't say that all the rangers are particularly yeah. well trained or well equipped. But where we have managed to train them to the highest levels, then it is clear that you can repel the poaching. Okay. Uh, last week, my team had just been out in Kenya one of our flagship projects, a place called the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy. Uh, they've got a significant rhino population. They used to have poaching there, but they haven't lost uh, rhino now for six years, I think. The reason for that is that they have got an extremely well-oiled anti-poaching team that works hand-in-hand -hand with the Kenya police, and they are trained by ex-special services uh, guys. So, you know, you can get the results. But what we've been doing, and with the support of Forevermark, we also fund uh, the Southern African Wildlife College. It's almost like a university campus now. It's quite big. Oh, wow. Um, and you've got young people from all over Africa going to this incredibly impressive college to be put through a series of courses. But particularly for us, it's, it's about range of courses and taking them through various levels of, of training so that they can then return back to their home country and, and be put into action. So we do a lot in this space. Thank you. And 
Kester, can you speak to that too? Because your yeah. charity is specialized in, in transporting huge numbers of, of animals. But what are some of the challenges? So historically, if you look at where the most the levels of poaching have been in countries like Tanzania, Zambia, where they've lost in a space of five years probably half of the elephant population, there's a common thread. And generally, they're big landscapes. They're quite difficult to, uh, to enforce, to have law enforcement in place. There are little or the training of scouts, as Charlie was saying, and, and of course, uh, minimal resources. They don't have vehicles, resources to be able to police it. And then, more importantly, there's generally a lack of political will in those places yeah. to curb poaching, and that mm. is key. Okay. And yeah. without that changing, you're actually fighting a losing battle. So if you get those three things right, there are a number of projects who have been successful in literally stopping poaching in its tracks, okay. not a single animal lost, a rhino, an elephant. So it is possible. And those are the three key issues that we need to talk to. It's the law enforcement, the funding, and then, of course, political will. Great. And Stephen, when you are um, doing your work with these organizations, what's been the most compelling thing so far? What do you feel like has been the greatest achievement? It's an emotional thing, I have to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, you can look at all the facts and figures on a on a paper, but when you're on a Jeep and you see the baby rhino with, with its mother, and actually you see dozens of baby rhino at one of our mines in, in Southern Africa, you're just overwhelmed with this extraordinary thing. Right? You know, these are like, to me, not being a specialist, they're like a connection to our historic past yeah. when you see these, these little rhino. And um, it makes you emotional about doing something about it. And once you get emotionally engaged, then it's a different thing. Yeah. And that's what I think has happened with the whole Forevermark and, and the De Beers team. And that's why we've done this moving these elephant yeah. from, you know, in a way we have the opposite problem at, at the Venetia mine and that it's not a poaching problem. We actually have too many elephant and to preserve the land for all the other species that need to use it. Okay. And this idea that you could move 200 elephant, 1,700 kilometers. I didn't think it was possible, I had to say, <laughs> at, at the beginning. That is, I was going to say, that's um, quite, this is quite an undertaking. Yeah, to... <laughs> there, is, uh, there is no greater feeling. You saw a little bit of the clip in, in there. There's no greater feeling than seeing those elephant come off the, the truck and run off into the fields of Mozambique where you think, wow, I've made my year just uh, <laughs> seeing that happen. You know, it's part of being in business at this particular point in the history of I want to get overblown to the history yeah. of capitalism. Huh? It's, a, yeah. it's a different time. You know, we don't think of this anymore like CSR. Huh? This, mm. You have to say to yourself that without the engagement of business, along with all the other actors, that we're not going to solve the world's problems. Mm -hmm. And that, that companies have to look at the way in which they do what they do. How does that make the world different and better place and help to solve some of the problems? Yeah. And we hear a lot about it with climate change, but for us in particular, you know, this issue is core to what we, to our communities yeah. where we are. Yeah. And if we're not involved in the solution, then to be honest, we're like part of the problem. Yeah. And it's a whole different change in, I think, corporate mentality. That, and hopefully we see it broadly across all the issues in the world, but this one in particular. I was going to say that was going to lead me to the, my next question just about sustainability, because in fashion, at least, we're constantly writing about it in fashion and obviously in, in luxury goods. Diamonds and mining for so long had been under fire, this and ethics and that. In terms of sustainability generally, can you talk a little bit more? I mean, this is obviously in Africa and conservation, one thread 
of all the work that, that you guys have been doing at De Beers and Forevermark. Can you talk a little bit more about, in a more holistic sense, the pipeline and conservation and, and what you're doing for the local communities and health, all, all of that? Yeah, it's sure. A big, I mean, there's... You, um, you really talk about it that much, and it's, it's important to get the word out. I think it was probably typical of our longtime family that ran De Beers, the Oppenheimer family they would do lots of things and never tell anyone about them because it was like bragging. Huh? So they just kept it to themselves. Mm. But as a result of that, I think we're in a world, particularly the diamond world, where the, the difference between the perception of the diamond world and the reality couldn't be further yeah. from the truth. So I think we've recognized that and this is what we see in the fashion community particularly, is that yeah. for millennial consumers, it's not enough that you have a product which they're interested in. You know, they want to feel a bond with the values of the brand yeah. and that they want to know that that brand is doing things which they find valuable for the world. And so I think that's made us look good at how we tell the story of the impact that diamonds have all over the world, but for De Beers particularly in Southern Africa. I mean, if you look at the major diamond mining companies in the world, they generate something like $16 billion in net benefit, 60% of which ends up in the communities, largely communities in the developing world. They pay the salaries people have in their image that, oh, you know, these people don't earn much money. Actually, the salaries for the 77,000 people who work for the diamond producers are sort of 5x the living wage, double the average incomes. You know, these are skilled jobs huh? that pay well, but people aren't aware of that. But I think particularly, as you say, in environmental and conservation, you know, if you say to someone a diamond mine, what do they think? Oh, you, you know, you're digging a big hole in the ground. Yeah. And, and, um, and what happens afterwards? And, yeah. and that's why, actually, I think we're for so long have been involved in, in conservation around the mining yeah. areas, because you need to make sure that when you eventually leave, which we will, that actually you've left that in a better place than when you got there. Yeah. And so for the key for us is around, particularly in the battle with climate change, how do you maintain those environments in terms of biodiversity, <coughs> water, and wildlife so the area is better than when you got there. And I heard the most extraordinary quote the other day from a senior government official in Botswana when someone was saying, you know, you shouldn't dig this hole in the ground. So what you're suggesting to me is that I, I shouldn't dig that hole, and what should I do with that land? Yes. You know, should I grow crops on it, and then I can probably feed 12 families if I grow crops. Yeah. Or I can extract, because I'm so lucky that it has this valuable, precious gem, I, could, I can recover diamonds from it, and I can feed a nation of 1.5 million. Yeah. Now you tell me what is the ethical choice yeah. as a government minister to do with this, with this land. And yeah. it's very compelling when you hear it. Exactly. Um, come yeah. in that way from people who are responsible for the citizens of their nation. And I think you're having a bigger impact that's changing people's lives in a much more sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what attracts people to work yeah. for a brand like Forevermark. And I think it's what attracts consumers to want to be proud of the diamond that they're wearing. Yeah. The more they know that now, the more proud they are. It does all tie together for me in a logical, rational, and emotional benefit. You were talking about this kind of tipping point in capitalism and big business about how it's not just a CSR, it's not a virtue signal to be doing, to be making these changes, to be taking these initiatives. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And then I want to also ask you what you're also seeing beyond. Yeah, I've been through the whole years. cycle. I mean, you can tell from my white hair that I've been at this for a long time. <laughs> Conservation 
comes naturally to us because we're there on, mm -hmm. on the ground. We have a lot of land yeah. under management. I mean, when, when you have a diamond mine, you just don't have the little mine. Huh? You need to protect it. So you have a lot of land. Yeah. And so the question is, well, it's natural now as part of our business model to use that land in a way that's productive for the country. Because that's why the country, the nations that we work with, it's their resource. Huh? The diamonds yeah. aren't ours, they're theirs. They let us recover them for them because we're doing something through the way we do business that benefits that country. country. Yeah. And so finding this idea that it's not about, I don't even like the word anymore, CSR. I think yeah. it's dealing with problems that are important in the communities and nations where you are. And, and you can, through the way you, you, you do your business, you can naturally impact them. To me, then they're really sustainable things. To the degree now that if you went to you know, the mine where we have the, the rhino breeding, the people who work there are attached to these rhino now. Huh? So there's no taking them away. <laughs> they're, they're part of now the family that is the company. And I think when we look at luxury goods now, we're sort of in that early phase of that. We haven't quite got that far yet. Mm. It's more about how do we make sure millennials like our brand. Exactly. And, and so they're doing activities in order to yeah. create that connection. And that's good. I'm not being critical of it. But it's only step one on the path to how do you do your business every day in a way mm. that represents those values? Kester, can you, yeah, we, can uh, you speak to that too? We're, we kind of face the same issues in the, in the conservation industry. So mm -hmm. as um, sustainability is linked to essentially the survival of many of these luxury brands, because yeah. people want cleaner, greener, more ethical products. People are asking questions about the environment mm -hmm. and what companies are doing for the environment. We faced with similar issues on the ground in Africa and the conservation field. And the old adage, if it pays, it stays, is of relevance. But sadly, as much as we want these protected areas to be uh, economically viable and sustainable, the reality on the ground is that actually very few of them are and will ever be totally sustainable. Uh, okay. Obviously, you will strive to be as sustainable as you, as yeah. you can, but not every protected area can do that. I mean, I feel strongly that a country's citizens and its government should look after protected areas. I mean, it should be like a fundamental issue. Yeah. But the reality is where governments are worrying about poverty, um, they're worrying about uh, health issues and more issues that are more important to them. You know, sadly, yeah. the protection of the natural environment and of these protected areas is on the back burner. And budgets are either really small or non-existent. So I think what I'm trying to say is there's a, there's a very special need for the world at large to support these protected areas. And it's a responsibility of each and every one of us if we can afford to do it. Even if it's a, a small contribution towards a protected area, I think it's, it's, a, it's a global responsibility because these areas are, you know, in a world of concrete and glass and right angles. We need these protected areas for our own survival, essentially. I mean, they're carbon sinks, they provide the oxygen that we need to live. So there mm. is a bigger picture there, and I think we all need to take a responsibility for, for this for this issue. It's a global issue. It's not just an African issue. It's not just a country's issue. It's all of ours issue, and we need to deal with it together. Uh, yeah, just to, yeah. to add to that, I think that... You know, we have to understand that we are now increasingly living in an urbanized world. You know, more than 50% of the world's population is urbanized. And as a result, we, as our own species, are becoming more and more disconnected from the natural world. And we're yeah. forgetting, actually, that we, uh, as David Attenborough, uh, you know, said at a 
Tusk event recently, you know, every breath we take and every mouthful of food we eat is reliant on the natural world. We have to start to look after this planet. And just picking up on what Stephen was saying, you know, we have seen, uh, we've been lucky enough to have uh, considerable support from the corporate world. But what I've also seen in the last couple of years is an increased uh, awareness and, and sort of conversation around environmental social governance and how investment fund managers are beginning to assess companies and how successful they are in implementing mm-hmm. environmental social governance practices within their work. And I, yeah. and I really hope that that goes a lot further. I think you're absolutely right, Stephen, that the adage of corporate social responsibility is sort of, is almost now passe. We've got to go a step further. Mm-hmm. And, and so I really hope that, you know, here we are in the heart of the city of London, that the power and the influence that this part of London has on affecting change within the corporate world, the global corporate world sector, is immense. And I think the the other the problem we have is that we all live increasingly busy lives and our priorities tend to be quite short term. But the the world of conservation and the environmental issues that we face are all long-term horizons. Mm. And so, you know, just human nature is such that we tend to deal with our short-term crises rather than actually, and we put, we keep on putting off meeting the challenges of the environment around conservation and, and the planet. We have to change our mindset to yeah. deal with this. Yeah, and there's also a shift in focus. You know, people are thinking about global warming, about plastic in the oceans, and then, you know, attention does get diverted. It gets diverted by short-term like you were saying, and also to other parts of, uh, parts of conservation. All of this, you know, it's all part of the same problem. Yeah. And, and we actually nowadays, you know, we need to think about climate change, the environment, plastics, mm-hmm. conservation, all as, as one thing. We shouldn't be thinking about these things in silos. And uh, so I think it's very easy to be thinking that saving an elephant or a rhino or a gorilla or whatever it is, that's a nice to have. Well, it's not a luxury. Mm. It is actually a necessity. It's yeah. all part of the fabric of biodiversity that, that sustains life. And, and uh, we shouldn't be thinking of conservation as just some sort of bunny-hugging aspiration. Yeah. It's, it's actually essential. This leads me also, uh, I wanted Stephen to talk about lab-grown diamonds. Uh, on this is from a sustainability point of view. There's huge debate around that, about the energy needed to create them, about uh, the inherent value, about what the impact is on uh, communities. In terms of you're saying, you open up a diamond mine, you are feeding an entire economy. Um, can you talk a little bit about this kind of curveball of um, lab-grown diamonds? Yeah, I think it's um, it's... I think the fact that the three of us are sitting here today is sort of evidence to the, I guess at best misleading, and I would argue at, at worst, deliberately deceptive information that we're being fed. Now, De Beers has synthesized diamonds for about 50 years. I mean, we're long in the process of understanding what it takes to create a synthetic yeah. Uh, diamond. We've got a big division, which industrial division, which has been doing that. They're used in electronics. Uh, they're used in cutting tools. So we have a lot of experience with synthesizing. And um, I mean, if you actually 
stepped back from the misleading information. You ask, what is best for the world? Is it, is it best to recover diamonds, which were made a billion years ago, where you can have an enormously positive benefit on both, to be honest, the community and the environment in those areas through the things we were talking about? Yeah. Or is it best to use an enormous amount of energy uh, to yeah. create something that actually the world doesn't need? Yeah. Because it has Stuff. the ones that nature uh, did. So sometimes I look at it and think, I can't believe I'm in this world of discussing this, because it's like, it's so obviously not true that, uh, that creating one is better than uh, recovering uh, yeah. nature's uh, version. But on the, you know, on the pure facts even, because we do synthesize diamond yeah. at, at De Beers, I can tell you that the energy consumption is large. It's about, uh, to synthesize a one carat diamond is about, on average, if you look at the world's synthesized facilities, about three times the amount of CO2 per okay. one carat diamond than recovering one. So even wow. on that okay. front, it's a bit absurd. Yeah. Uh, but what's really exciting, and I think it comes back to Charlie's point about the corporate world is, I think, at this critical juncture of change. And I'd be really interested to look back in a decade, and climate change is a great example of it, in that you know, we've got a task team now at De Beers working on how we can become, without offsets, carbon neutral. And how okay. long will it take? What will it take? And how long will it take yeah. to get there? And I can tell you, five years ago, we did not have that. We had you know, energy reduction targets, but no one was saying, how can you recover diamonds and have no footprint? Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. So you, once you start thinking about it, you say, well, actually, it's not impossible. Huh? You need uh, vehicles that run on electricity or hydrogen power rather than diesel. Mm -hmm. So the first, you have to look at your fleet. And how can you change that? It's not impossible. We can see now you can have electric cars. Then you need to have a, a renewable source of electricity. You can't easily do that off the grid in the Southern Africa. But you know, one thing that Botswana has, or two things, a hell of a lot of land and a hell of a lot of sun that never goes away. <laughs> and so if there is a place for solar, that's it. You know, what does Namibia have? It never stops blowing wind down the coast. So there's, there's opportunities to create renewable energy sources in those particular communities. And then actually, the thing that really excites me, and you know, I'm no scientist, but you can see this, I don't know, this is kimberlite. This is the rock that diamonds come in. So you mine this kimberlite rock and the diamonds are inside. We've discovered kimberlite is actually, has the ability to absorb CO2 and store it. Oh. And what you have to do is you have to increase the surface area of the kimberlite that's exposed to the CO2. And it's not inconceivable, theoretically, it's possible, theoretically, it's just practically, how do we do it? that actually the, the kimberlite, which we leave behind when we mine, can actually become carbon storage and can store CO2. So in theory, we could become, forget carbon neutral, we could become net positive. Net. Uh, so, but five years ago, would we have even been focused on these things? No. How long ago did you know that about 
the CO2 properties of the, or the storing properties of chemicals. I get, well, I mean, personally, incredible. I guess two years ago, the scientists said, oh, did you know? Like, what do you mean to me? No. <laughs> but it's because, of, it's because you have to focus, huh? And so that's the, you focus on, here's the problem the world has. What can you do? And then suddenly yeah. you, you find that there are things you didn't know were potentially oh, wow. doable solutions. And so if you say, why is that happening? I think it's, the city is part of it. Investors yeah. are beginning to say we're not investing it unless you're part of the solution. Yeah. Consumers are part of it because millennials are saying, I want to associate with companies who are doing good. So if you want your brand to, to survive, you better be solving the problems. And then, to be honest, five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when I were hiring young people, they asked me things like, um, you know, they never asked me about the pension thing. It's fun great thing about a 20-year-old. They never think they got to retire. <laughs> but they would say, what's the holiday pay? You know, what's the how many weeks holiday do I get? And, uh, you know, what's it like around here? What's for lunch? Uh, is, is there a gym? You know, you have all those sort of questions. <laughs> but now they say to me, what do you stand for? Mm. I think it's really interesting. What do you stand for? Because yeah, they don't want to work for a company that they don't feel that they can say to their friends, this company is like doing really good things. And they don't mean creating the products. They mean the impact that they're having. Yeah. And so if you want to hire the best people, young people, if you want people to, to buy your product, and if you want investors to invest in you, you better be part of a solution to some problem. Okay. And, yeah. and I think the climate one, which is very connected with environmentalism, because it's in Southern Africa, water is very connected to climate change, and water is essential to all maintaining wildlife as well. So it's all a connected issue, and you better be part of the solution. I would love uh, for, for all three of you to talk about the next steps and what your challenges are in the next six months, year, 18 months. What will you be tackling? What will you be fighting? <laughs> um, and what's sort of the next steps? Uh, Charlie, if we can start with, uh, with you. Well, we, you know, um, earlier on we were talking about the, the challenges presented by the illegal wildlife trade and poaching. It's a $20 billion a year industry. And, you know, the conservation world in some respects has been preoccupied with trying to tackle that illegal wildlife trade over oh. the last 10 years or so. Uh, and we are making some progress, but we can't be complacent. Yeah. But actually, I think Kess will probably agree with you that the, the biggest train coming down the track yeah. is loss of habitat. Yeah. Africa's human population is set to double from 1.2 billion today to 2.4 billion by 2050. Tusk has been going for 30 years. In the next 30 years, we're going to see double that population on the African continent. Yeah. The pressure on land is just oh, going yeah. to grow and grow and grow. And so if we are going to be successful in, in, in preserving uh, what is a unique natural heritage that that continent enjoys, it is the last place on Earth that really <coughs> has these sort of mega fauna, charismatic species like elephant and rhino and gorillas and cheetah and lion. We haven't mentioned the lion population. The lion population is now lower than the rhino population. There are less than 22, 23,000 lion left in the wild in Africa today. So that's another big challenge. But space is really ultimately our biggest fear that, um, and, and hanging on to large tracts of land so that Species like the elephant, which need to migrate over big tracts of land, preserving that space is, is, is essential. And one of the challenges is that, you know, we've got national parks, which is great, but actually, if you take a country like Kenya, 70% of its wildlife lives outside national parks. 
And so, you know, the future of that wildlife relies on the relationship between the communities that live alongside elephants and rhinos and, and other species. And how do they view it? You know, uh, we have to find a way of ensuring that communities view that wildlife as an asset and not as a threat. And that comes down to how do we make the economic <coughs> value of preserving wildlife and, and the habitats, how do we make that economic sense to those communities? And indeed, going back to what I was saying earlier, how do we make that land precious to the political elite and the urban majority, yeah. who frankly don't really care about it? So we have to elevate the economic value of these wild places yeah. on the political agenda. Sorry, I can just reiterate what Charlie said. I think habitat is key. It's probably the most important issue that we faced with today. And I've sadly been to many legislated protected areas where the trees are being cut down and people are growing crops and actually live in the national parks. Yeah. And it's a sad state of affairs. And the next five to 10 years are going to be critical, really, really critical. And we could lose possibly up to 50% of the legislated protected national parks in, in Africa in the next 10 years. How do we reverse that and how do we do it? And community involvement is key. Yeah. We need to uplift community people so that they can see the value in the natural capital in these areas. There's, there's no other way. They have to get some sort of fiscal benefit from the yeah. parks so and not in the form yeah. of the resources in the park. And that's the conundrum. How do we, how do, yeah. we do that? Because if they kill all the animals you know, for food, they're going to eat, they're all going to have one meal once <coughs> and then there's going to be no more animals. Or chop down the trees, they'll have use of them today for charcoal for the next two or three months, but after that, then what? So, yeah. so that's the difficult part, is how do we make all yeah. of this work and make it sustainable so that they can see a value and a fiscal, some sort of fiscal benefit from protecting the, the, the natural environment which they normally live around. And, and that's, that's key. It's important. We have to involve local communities and uplift them one way or another. And, and this habitat is, I mean, it feeds perfectly into what I do. I mean, we move animals from areas where there are too many and then excess where they've been well protected. We take them to new landscapes where the habitat is protected, mm -hmm. but there are no animals left for whatever reason. Provided the habitat is intact, we can do that. You can, yeah. The, the expertise and the knowledge is there for us to be able to do this at scale and do it over big distances like we've just demonstrated with the Moving Giants project. Five years ago, we wouldn't have thought it possible to move a couple of hundred elephants more than 1,700 kilometers across an international border, but, yeah. but we did it. And with the help of, of De Beers and their support, but it only worked because there was habitat at Zanav National Park in Mozambique, and there was there intact too, yeah. habitat in Venetia where the animals came from. And, and that is key to all of this. And we can restore these areas, they can, we can rewild them, but we yeah. need intact habitat, and that's, and that's key to all of us, really. As chairman of Forevermark, I got a sort of simple mission in life. Uh, and what I want to do is to, well, so I guess starting with everybody here in the room, but actually everybody in the world, I want to make them extraordinarily proud of the Forevermark diamond that they have on their finger mm -hmm. or around their neck or in their ears or on their wrist. Um, and, and proud because a little promotional push, they are extraordinarily <laughs> beautiful. Uh, the, the diamonds, and when you look at them, you'll think, wow, that looks fantastic. 
secondly, because they usually mark something meaningful in your life. And increasingly, we see meaningfulness is bigger than your relationship, which is their historical thing for diamonds. But now they're, they mark meaningful moments in a woman's life, independent of her relationship as well. But most importantly, I, I want people to look at it and be proud because that forever marked diamond is part of the solution to some of the bigger issues facing the world. And we play our small part uh, uh, in this, but that small part, I think, is something that, that we want everybody who owns one of our diamonds to feel that they're part of that, and they can be proud of that because of the good that it's doing. And I think that's our new mantra for the decades to come. Well, thank you for listening to The Power of a Diamond. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to discover more about Forevermark's commitment to protecting nature's beauty, head over to our website, forevermark.com.